and welcome to episode 131 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? It was really good, and I really enjoyed the, the double star episode with Blake. I thought that was uh, just a super fun conversation and mm-hmm. um, sort of renewed, not that I've never not had interest in uh, the double stars, but I've been, honestly, I've been neglecting that list a little bit lately, so I, I need to put some focus on it. Um, so, you know, take advantage of these warm nights and some double star observing. Yeah, I like what, you know, I liked a lot of what... Uh, what Blake talked about from his his time as an astronomer in residence at Kalani Park recently to uh, to the double stars and then some of the other observing like he was saying he's a generalist which which uh, I mean he really is like he's into a whole variety of different things from uh, you know doing some some imaging and some citizen science to to double stars and deep sky observing he's he's kind of got uh, got an iron in in all the astronomical fires so. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really interesting to talk to, to him and get, uh, get that different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was really good. Um, as for my week, not a lot of observing, uh, two things to report. Um, maybe I'll start with the pencil Borg, uh, that, that seemed to get a little bit of interest from some listeners, uh, mm. based on the emails that we received. Um, so, when I reported last week, um, I said I was only like the biggest part of this thing that uh, maybe disappointed me was the inability to uh, get most of my eyepieces to focus. Um, in mm. fact, I could only get two to focus, which well, right. I didn't try them all, but um, the uh, the 24 millimeter pan optic and the 13 millimeter Nagler, they're parafocal. So, you know, makes sense that they would both work. Um, but even on, like, like on any of my other telescopes, they require a lot of outward focus travel to achieve focus. Mm -hmm. So it meant that anything that, you know, was, was requiring more inward focus just wouldn't work. Now I was using my Teleview one and a quarter inch mirror diagonal. Mm -hmm. I swapped that out for a prism. And Mm -hmm. like I mentioned, prisms typically have a, a shorter light path. And that was indeed the case. Um, I was able to get focus with the panoptic and I had probably another 10 millimeters or so, I think, I didn't measure it, but it it looked like about 10 millimeters of travel distance. So that extra 10 millimeters has allowed basically any eyepiece to work now uh, with this little telescope. So that's encouraging. Um, Yeah. So I ordered some uh, uh, laser pointer rings um, (laughs) that mount on a, like a finder shoe and they will easily. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they, they will accommodate my really tiny telescope. So um, it'll be a way to mount it as a finder scope and uh, I'll play around with it that way, I think for a little while and just see how I like it. So that's the pencil board update. Well, look, I, I got to ask the question that everybody's been been waiting to hear. How, how does the bond of your work in it? <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if I'm going to get there. <laughs> That would be the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> well, look, you're the one that bought a 25 millimeter telescope. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I opened myself up to this level of ridicule. So oh, wow. I'll take it. I'll take oh, it. Oh, wow. We can't even, we can't even, we can't even publish what I said. But <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to put an age warning on our, on our podcast. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think, I, I don't think that's suitable for any age. 
No, you're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll so never I didn't. Be old now. <laughs> I didn't get any. Well, I shouldn't say any. I did not get uh, any nighttime observing in. Um, I did look at the sun a little bit, both in white light and hydrogen alpha. Um, there was a, a small, there a large group of small sunspots, and mm-hmm. uh, I think there was about eight to ten. I can't remember how many I counted. Um, sort of in a arcing line in the Southern hemisphere, uh, nearing the limb. Um, so that was kind of neat and a lot of, uh, granulation was visible and, um, uh, in white light, uh, using okay. moderate power. I should have probably used a little bit more, but, um, and then in hydrogen alpha, uh, again, there's always so much detail to see in hydrogen alpha. Um, what I will say though, is, um, the prominences were, there's, there's always prominences when you uh, observe hydrogen alpha. Um, I'm, I don't recall ever using my H alpha telescope and not seeing prominences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more just to it, like the, it's how many you see and how large are they in, in different shapes and, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was observing, they weren't that grand, you know, there wasn't many of them and they weren't super big or doing wild and crazy things. Um, nonetheless, still enjoy it. You know, it's still a fun way to observe and, and just get a little telescope time in during the daytime. Um, so I will continue the, uh, the solar observing as much as I can all summer. Just, you know, there's lots to see on the sun right now with the, uh, solar cycle ramping up to, uh, to maximum. Cool. So how, how was your week, Chris? It was good. I, you know, the one it was clear on Monday night or whatever it was. And, uh, maybe it was Sunday night and I, I'd done so much observing. I was thinking about going out, but yeah, I just probably shouldn't have gone out and I didn't go out because I was already pretty tired from whatever I did, like five or six nights, um, you know, while I was on vacation. So, so yeah, I, I didn't go out. I did order. What did I order? I ordered the final part to take the comic catcher to two inch um for eyepieces so i'm eager to i'm eager to get that and then eager to try um and mike doesn't know this yet but i think i'm going to try to uh, see if i can use his 20 millimeter nagler in it one night just to kind of get the feel for it oh. and then uh yeah hopefully uh, eventually get uh, a lower power uh, two inch eyepiece that will work with that uh with that telescope yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm uh, I'm thinking of getting a 25 millimeter plossel for this little pencil Borg. Um, you know, like you mentioned last week, the 24 millimeter panoptic the field stop on there is like close to, I think it is 30 millimeters. It, it's far exceeds the actual mm. aperture of, of the telescope. So, so I, you know, would like to maximize the field of view with this little thing. And I think a, a 25 millimeter plossel is probably about the sweet spot for it. So you, I might order you know what one I would, those. you know what I would recommend? I don't know if they make one in the 25 millimeters or not, but, uh, I bought from a Gina Astro systems, Mm-hmm. The 32 millimeter, just like their store branded one, like whatever it's called. And uh, a lot of people on, on Clyde and Nights uh, had, had made some very positive reviews um, that it's not like top tier, but it's very, very close. They've tweaked the, the design a little bit for Gina. Okay. Um, and I was blown away by how good the 32 millimeter uh, is. It's super light. The optics are, you know, surprisingly sharp for, I think I paid like, $30 for it or something like that. And then, um, it's got black and edges. There's, you know, good reflection control, nice eye cup. Like 
considering the price, I, I can't really say anything negative about it. Uh, but what sticks out for me is uh, the quality, I think, um, will be acceptable for you. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then as well, because it's so lightweight and that telescope uh, may benefit from a lighter weight uh, optic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, Something I'm, to think about. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, the reason I was going with the 25 was uh, just to try to get the magnification a little higher. So 25 millimeter gives me a, a seven times magnification. Mm-hmm. Uh, 32 is about five and a half times. So close. Um, uh, you know what? I, I Maybe what I'll try is my 32 millimeter uh uh, Tac Abbey Ortho. It's not as wide as the Plossel, but more so just to test that level of magnification. And if I like it, then maybe get the Plossel for a little uh, extra field of view there and uh, uh, see how that works. Yeah, I'm gonna see if there's an uh, in that uh, in that 25 uh, millimeter size for you. But uh, we had some exciting news this week, eh? We did. Yeah, yeah. The uh, so the the predominant or the probably the maybe the only, I don't know if it's the only Canadian astronomical magazine, but definitely the, um, uh, like the, the largest subscriber base, uh, sky news, uh, magazine had a article on the podcast and, uh, one of our, uh, frequent listeners and, you know, person that we exchange a lot of emails with Eric from, uh, the Calgary RASC center, uh, interviewed us and then, uh, had the article printed, uh, as well. He's, He's a contributing editor, I think, to the magazine, or, or um, I'm not sure what his title is in the magazine. We'll know? call him that. We'll give him okay. a promotion here uh, okay. with all the uh, due responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the, the interview was a ton of fun. Like when we had that conversation with Eric, that, that was a couple months ago now, I think. Yeah, um, February. Yeah, we, we had a lot of laughs and it was a fun discussion. And uh, I think he did a great job uh, translating that into print. Yeah, no, it was really good. It was exciting to see. And then uh, I think maybe as a result of that, I noticed that we're actually, uh, we've actually moved up significantly in the Canadian rankings. We're the number two astronomy podcast in Canada now. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool too. So thanks for everybody listening. Um, We really appreciate that. And it certainly, you know, uh, in a way motivates us, I think, or motivates me anyway. It's just nice to know people are listening. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it is super nice. And uh, yeah, we had uh, some other like really nice correspondence from people, just people writing some just super nice uh, emails. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, yeah, it's one of the sort of surprising things, you, you, you know, often you don't hear that about putting stuff out on the internet. And often there, there can be negative comments by people. I don't really think we've ever really had a negative comment. I'm certainly not inviting them. But <laughs> um, no, I, I think the only, the only one we ever had was somebody, I think just tuned in they were just like looking for like general podcasts on generalized topics. And then they were like, oh, well, like if you want to listen to like a good podcast, try this other one. It was like something on, uh, literature or something, um, uh, uh, different topics. So. Yeah. Like an Australian professor or something he, he recommended, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's so, so that's fine. Um, also, uh, Jim, uh, posted on, uh, cloudy nights in the beginners forum, uh, this yeah. week, which was a surprise to me. I didn't know, uh, our, our friend Bill, uh, sent me a link to it. Uh, so thanks Jim. Yeah. There were lots of nice comments from folks. Uh, I, and I, I poked around, um, on cloudy nights, but I usually don't go poking around to see if people are mentioning the podcast and, um, yeah, people were, um, 
you know, saying some positive things there as well. So I was like, oh, well, that's really nice. Um, if people are Cloudy Nights members, yeah, we, we try to do this kind of in a bit of a Cloudy Nights way because, uh, you know, we've, we've both been long fans of Cloudy Nights, but uh, neither of us really contribute all that much to Cloudy Nights because I, I think there's, there's lots of amazing contributors on there. Um, many people have more experience, I know, them, than I do in a lot of the topics, Shane. So I'm more of a, more of a reader. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, how, how people write and, and respond um, has certainly, I think, guided us in, uh, in much of our topics on, on this podcast. Yeah, Cloudy Nights has been an awesome resource for me uh, during my entire amateur astronomer career. Um, and I go there frequently still. Um, I always enjoy the conversations, um, particularly centered around uh, gear that I'm using or that I'm thinking about. Uh, or and or observing that I'm currently doing and or thinking about. So it's uh, it's a wonderful community. Um, you know, there's a, a wealth of um, experience and knowledge and the contributions there. And then the the beautiful part about it all is it's recorded for eternity. So you know, there's a lot of great resource material there mm-hmm. that you can reference. Again, like um, you know, if you're thinking about an eyepiece or a telescope, uh, you can ask Chris and I. But you know, you and I have only used you know, what we've used, which is not everything that's out there. So I'm always hesitant. Uh, In fact, I really don't provide any kind of uh, comments usually on stuff that I've never used. I can tell you what I think of stuff I have used, but I think it was even uh, last week when we recorded, we talked about the subjectivity of Mm -hmm. uh, like eyepieces, you know, how some people Mm -hmm. love and some people hate the Pentex uh, XW 20 millimeter. Um, And uh it's just one of those things, you know, you, it's hard to find a definitive, um, uh, uh, it's hard to find a predictor of how you will enjoy or not enjoy a particular piece of gear. Um, but you know, if you take in a lot of different perspectives, which is what cloudy nights provides, it can help you form a, you know, a bit of a, uh, you know, guesstimate as to how you may like or not like something. Yeah. Yeah. No, cool. And uh, and we had talked a little bit about the uh, sky quality meter, the SQM meter, um, mm. last week, and uh, and not only was Bill nice enough to send us that uh, that link to to the uh, bit of promo that Jim had done on Cloud Nights, but Bill also had responded. Um, maybe I'll just go ahead and, and read this. Yeah. Sure. Um, so regarding the sky quality uh, meter or the SQM, uh, Bill writes, uh, "Hey guys, interesting your takes on the SQM." I've had one since, and oh, and I should say for those that, that don't realize, so Bill is uh, is sort of a longtime astronomy friend of mine, and uh, and he's been a longtime listener of the show, and he's an extremely experienced amateur astronomer. So, kind of, um, if if you if you're getting the drift, I'm, I kind of would defer to Bill a little bit, maybe in in some matters um, than necessarily what what I say. So, uh, anyway, with that. Uh, Bill says, I've had uh, an SQM meter since its early days uh, and bring it out most times when I'm observing. I use it to add to the, uh, add to the document of the night sky conditions uh, to go in my log. Uh, site's SQM reading can actually change to a degree from night to night. It usually depends on transparency. In February, Doug Welsh, one of the co-creators of SQM, gave a talk on Zoom to the Victoria Centre of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. It was interesting, and it's saved up on YouTube. And uh, if anybody has time to spare, Shane, uh, he included a link for us. If we, we can tweet that out, maybe that would be awesome. Mm-hmm, for sure. 
Yeah, he goes on to say, I believe he's, uh, this is uh, Doug Welsh. I believe Doug Welsh is uh, is an Ottawa member of the RASC. Um, and he might actually make a good guest on the podcast. Yeah, that could be interesting. Just actually uh, kind of go to the source instead of us just shooting from the hip. That's a good <laughs> idea. If we were journalists, we probably would have done that in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great suggestion. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I've uh, I've kind of got it uh, queued up to, to watch uh, next time I'm on the bike. Uh, it's important to know when it reads the sky um, and, and how to use it properly. The original version reads a 90 degree cone of the sky. If there is something blocking part of this zone, then the reading will say darker. On the other hand, if the Milky Way is directly overhead, especially the sparkling Cygnus region, then the reading will say the sky is brighter than it is. I found this at the top of Mount Kobo, which is a, a famous place here in uh, Western Canada. Uh, that a star party takes place on. Uh, there is now a narrower zone version, so you can pinpoint the darkness of the area you are thinking of observing. Personally, I don't worry about that too much. I just give the object a try and find out if the object was visible on that night. Chris, I am with you on the Bortle scale. I always find it interesting when someone calls a site Bortle whatever, when they've never been there and it's many hundreds of kilometers from where they live. Bortle measurements need to be done live. They too can change based on sky conditions and what one actually sees. This also brings up eyesight, which is a whole different can of worms. As always, enjoy the podcast, Bill. Well, thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate the email. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. And um, I certainly have very, very, very limited experience with the SQM. So any kind of insight uh, is is definitely appreciated. And it does help to explain a little bit of the, the variance probably in the readings that, you know, or... Yeah, in the readings that I've seen when I've been out under some dark skies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then Charlie chimed in as well. Do you want to read uh, Charlie's email, sort of a different perspective? Yeah, yeah. This is also interesting uh, uh, on the sky quality meter. Um, and again, this is <laughs> just a side note here, a surprise. You know, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, well, I didn't know that we would have, you know, receive two emails on SQM. This is sort of a niche uh, piece of equipment um, that, you know, anybody can buy, but typically not many people have them. But anyway, Charlie wrote, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, I picked up a, a sky quality meter shortly after I got my Stellina observing station, and I've been trying to remember to carry it with me and use it whenever I go out observing, uh, whether Stellina or visually. Uh, my methodology is to hold it up around eye level and to make a reading facing in each of the cardinal compass points and to average the readings. Uh, if I have made readings on multiple occasions from a given location, I then average the averages to get a master value for that location. Uh, I try to remember to make readings about an hour after the end of astronomical twilight. Uh, my experience has been that my reading readings on any given night in any location have all been within one magnitude uh, slash arc second uh, carrot two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that is held true for uh, or held true even for the location where I have seven sets of readings. Uh, since I am hand-holding the SQM and can only see it from one direction, it may not always point directly to the zenith for each reading. And when I actually press the button, I'm sure I'm changing its orientation. Uh, but I'm contributing, or sorry, but I'm attributing uh, most of the variation between sequential readings to variations in the amount of haze that is passing overhead. Uh, so also uh, some good insight there from Charlie on hmm. the SQM. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's kind of neat. Uh, so like we, we were saying, and, you know, I, I think what these folks are, are telling us, Shane, is uh, I think I may even still have an SQM reader on my desk. Um, just just on at my desk today, and uh, yeah, I should grab it. Maybe we can play around with it a bit this summer. Uh, yeah, just, that would be fun. We can find out because that kind of gives a little bit better better direction, I guess. Maybe from my from my perspective, um, and I know that that you're a fan of keeping things pretty simple too. Um, it would just be another thing to have out. I, I like just to look at the stars and say, okay, tonight it's pretty dark. I can see. Maybe I can see a 5.8 magnitude star or a 6.1 magnitude star from my site. That's probably about the best night I've ever had would be maybe maybe 6.1 here. Um, I, I like to use that because I feel like that's just like so universally. If I say straight up overhead, that's how faint I can see. I feel like that really it's very simple and you know that's kind of how how I do it. But uh, but they are kind of neat devices. I was really excited when they came out and then I was able to to obtain one. Um, just, just to play around with it. Uh, and I certainly did at first, but then after a while, I just kind of, yeah, I've, I, I took on sketching, I think, and, and <laughs> that's where all my observing energy uh, went. Okay. Um, Ben wrote us, uh, an email. I'm not sure if you saw this one, Shane, um, he, Ben's in Australia. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did read this one. Yeah. This is yeah. a super cool email. Yeah. I thought it was neat. Uh, do you mind if I take a read of it? Yeah, go for it. All right. Um, ben writes, hi, Chris and Shane. Firstly, thank you for sharing your love of visual astronomy through your twice weekly episodes. Uh, I live in a part of Australia that is largely disconnected from any uh, astronomy community. Uh, the nearest club is uh, 500 kilometers away and the nearest star, star party is over 3,400 uh, kilometers for a round trip. Uh, as such, you guys have become my vicarious observing buddies. Uh, and any less than two episodes a week would see me in a state of astro withdrawal. Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we we can somewhat. Um, yeah, we're we're in a somewhat similar position in a way, Shane. I think because yeah, we we live in an area that is very. I mean, I think it's like the least populated area in in North America, except for like above the Arctic Circle. Um, you know, as far as being down in the in the lower latitudes um or the mid latitudes of of the northern hemisphere i don't think there's another area that, that has as few people as uh, saskatchewan does it's it's very sparsely populated here yeah yeah we we have uh two larger well for our province two large cities uh, of about uh i think what 250 to 300,000 per city um and then outside of that it's very uh it's very spread out there's not there's not many people you know, in concentrations. So yeah, as a result, the light pollution is, uh, you know, far less than a lot of other more populated areas. For reference, um, we are five times larger than, um, England in land size. Yeah. in land size. Yeah. And we have just about a million people plus or minus. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that can kind of give people a, a pretty good, pretty good reference there. So I don't know how many people live in the UK. I should have looked that up. That would that would have given better context. But a- anyway, um, I'll go on. Um, he goes on to say, if you uh, would allow me to indulge, I'd like to share two stories with you. The first refers to a comment Chris mentioned um, in episode 229 about his friend that had an early astronomy experience under pristine sky and may have been ruined by it. <laughs> <laughs> I too had a similar experience. This experience, I think, I, I, when I wrote him back, I said, I think this wins the observation of the month award. 
Mm-hmm. I was about uh, 18 months into my astro journey when a friend of mine invited me to observe at his observatory, which is a three and a half hour drive to a location where there's no evidence of human made light. And the skies can only be described as pristine in a 360 degree unobstructed view. The zodiacal light stretches almost to the zenith and the Milky Way lights up the landscape in a way that I can only compare to a dim nightlight in my child's bedroom. We lay on the deck chairs pointing out numerous deep sky objects, naked eye, the Trifid, the Lagoon, Omega, Eagle, Nebulae. Um, when we went to the eyepiece of his 24-inch F4.2 Dobsonian, the Trifid had striking pink and blue colors behind dark dust lanes. Jupiter looked like a Hubble image with brown, gray, red, and white shades spread throughout festoons mm. and lines across the surface. And we spent considerable time observing one of the Galilean moons as an obvious sphere transiting oh. Jupiter's surface. <laughs> this, when I read this, I just couldn't believe like it. it and I don't mean that in like a, a, a challenging way. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I, I you know, this is a, a bucket list night for sure. And um, very few people, I think, get that experience. Yeah. And he said they could see uh, nebulosity and the spiral arms of galaxies. And uh, he, he said he knew it was a special night, even though he he was limited in his experiences at, at that time. And mm-hmm. and he he's since gone to obtain a 16-inch custom daub. Um, and uh and and yeah, I mean that that seems like a like a pretty good uh, a pretty good telescope. So he said he recently had a coffee with that friend and and commented that while I was always uh, appreciative of every invitation he offers to his site, it had ruined me. <laughs> it was met with a fit of laughter and a quiet, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's awesome. So a second story that he uh, that he relates to us um, has to do with reflectors. I'm a lover of Dobsonians and have a Skywatcher 130P Heritage as my grab-and-go that I really enjoy using. I have never had any desire to own a refractor or Schmidt over a Dob. However, we could go secondhand Celestron uh, six inch Macassar grain came onto the market in my town. That's a rare event being uh, offered by a person in their eighties and just couldn't observe anymore. Um, it came with a focal reducer and a solar filter, and he only wanted a hundred Australian dollars for it. Wow. I expected it to be broken, but to my surprise, it was in perfect working order. Obviously, that is not something to walk away from. So I now own my first Macassar Green telescope. I have to say that ignoring what these little telescopes can do has been a major oversight. I mean, I love that uh, it's three telescopes in one, a six-inch F10 um, without the reducer, a six-inch F6.3 with the reducer, and a six-inch solar scope. I've never observed the sun, and I'm now out in the garden day and night with this little telescope. Kind of reminded me of you, Shane. Yeah, I have done a lot of reading in the first few years of the hobby, but never realized the versatility they offer. Thanks for doing what you do. Keep it up. Regards, Ben. Thanks so much, Ben. Those C6s are amazing, I think. Like they really punch above their weight. Um uh like I I had never really considered one, um, you know, due to aperture and you know, when you factor in the central obstruction. Um, but there's been a couple club members here locally that have had C6s. And whenever I've looked through them, I'm just astonished by how good mm-hmm. they are. Like they're mm-hmm. really fantastic. Yeah. I've looked through a couple and, uh, and agree. I almost had bought one at one point in time, but that's when, um, just right before I, I made the purchase, my, uh, my six inch Max Sudoff had come, uh, up for sale. It was a used telescope. 
and uh, I was able to get it for about half the price of the of the C uh, the C six. So anyhow, yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, Brett wrote us on the uh, on the Altoids variable LED light, which he sent us the post um, that he made on cloudy nights about his LED um, red light with the potentiometer. But I had read that. I knew who this person was as soon as I saw that, because I remember reading that, that post, but uh, do you want to go ahead and read, read this email? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Brett writes, uh, hope you're both doing well as always. Thank you for the podcast. I look forward to listening to it every week. A few recent episodes inspired me to write in with a couple of thoughts And I also have a question that I'd like to submit either as a standalone answer or perhaps as a topic for a future episode. Uh, So number one, uh, Shane mentioned wanting to do more lunar observing this summer, especially trying to look at it in each of its phases. I just finished the uh, Astronomical League's lunar observing program and highly recommend it. The lunar features on the list have a good variety of geographical locations. So it encourages you to look at different times to get the uh, the lighting just right for the shadows to highlight the feature you're searching for. Uh, I found myself uh, observing multiple evenings in a row to try to catch the shadows uh, just right. And um, uh, that's a great uh, recommendation. The uh, Astronomical League's uh, lunar observing program. Um, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada also has the, uh, uh, why am I drawing a Isabel Williams. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Which is, uh, another fantastic lunar program. And what I really like about the RASC's program is there's sort of the, like the general or the standard program, but then they list a whole bunch of like challenge features to see on the moon as well. And some of those features require larger apertures. Um, but it, you know, it, it really gives you a large volume of observing work to do if you're interested in the moon. Nice. Um, so Brett goes on to say here, number two point, um, not sure if this will be of any interest, but I thought I'd share just in case you recently brought up using red lights with an adjustable brightness level. Uh, when I was starting out <laughs> and then in brackets, a whopping one year ago, Uh, I was interested in purchasing an astronomy light with adjustable levels and found a thread on cloudy nights where someone mentioned building their own. Uh, After some research, which I believe also brought up an article from Sky and Telescope, I decided to try and build my own. Uh, I had no experience whatsoever in hobby electronics, but after uh, a bit of YouTube university, I gave it a go. Uh, I think it turned out just fine and have enjoyed using it over the past several months. He gave us a link uh, to the Cloudy Nights uh, thread that he posted this in, but if you just do an internet search for Cloudy Nights and then uh, Altoids Tin LED, you'll (laughs) You'll find it quite easily. It's amazing. And it's a great read, even if you don't want to build a flashlight. Go read this. It's awesome. People should read it. It looks, it looks so amazing. It just like, it's an Altoids container. Everybody knows an Altoids container looks like probably it's just like a tin, a little tin can. I think Altoids are, they're kind of like a, like a mint of some sort, aren't they? Am I, am I remembering this right? Mint or like cough candy or something like that. Something like that. Anyway, they had like this sort of uh, unique sort of, they don't look old timey, but it's a, it's a very prominent Kind of tin, and then uh, he figured out a way to to make it into an LED. It has like a switch on it and everything. Uh, looks super super cool. Anyway, I just love that. I'd I'd read the article when it uh, when he had posted it on Cloudy Nights, and uh, yeah, of course, and replied. I just enjoyed reading it, and then it was really cool to kind of connect over that. So I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, and I I love that he. 
like in the cloudy nights thread, he lays out the components and the cost. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> this is like cheap. A, this is like a $3 flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe probably $5, I guess, when you're all said and done. American. But, yeah. 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 So it, it's, uh, I don't think you, you can't buy one for this, uh, this, uh, you know, small amount of money. So if you're somewhat handy, uh, this is a pretty doable, uh, DIY project, which, uh, looks awesome. So I think you should, I think you should make one Shane. This would be uh, right up your alley. You're, you're definitely, uh, uh, far more handy than I am and certainly could, could knock one of these out. But I, I was talking to Brett about this as well. I, I think, I, I think like a Zippo lighter conversion would be, <laughs> that would be the bees knees on this one too. Right. They get, uh, they get uh, in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty sweet. <laughs> you know, the cool thing color. about this too is like you can make it whatever color you want then yeah. as well. You just buy the the color of LED that you're interested in and you know, away you go. So yeah. yeah. What so would be cool? We could make one that's like a cigarette and you can make one that's like a Zippo. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, keep going. Yeah, uh, yeah. We gotta we gotta shut down your creativity here. This is getting out of hand. <laughs> All right. So the last part of Brett's email, uh, finally, I have a question for you. Can you describe how you would approach an observing opportunity at a new latitude? For example, I live at about 41 degrees North and will be Mm -hmm. traveling to 20 degrees North this summer. At the very, yeah, at the very least, uh, I'll be bringing my binoculars, uh, but we'll be, uh, but we'll try and bring my AT 70 ED as well as the AZ GTI mount, uh, if space allows. Uh, how does one go about figuring out which objects to prioritize at a new latitude? I'd love to take advantage of the opportunity and see some things that I may not see from home or things that are not, or things that are normally close to the horizon at home that will be higher at, uh, the more Southern latitudes. I'd love to hear how each of you would approach traveling, uh, what resources you use to plan, uh, if there are, uh, books or resources that highlight different objects at different latitudes, uh, how you prioritize which objects to make sure you see in the location, uh, et cetera. So Chris, you gave a great response. So why don't you chime in with that? And then maybe I'll just uh, add anything if there, if there is anything to add. Yeah, I, I think like it's fairly, fairly simple in a way. I mean, because you're going to be looking uh, mostly south to grab uh, those new objects that uh, are going to now, uh, you know, an object that that was on the horizon at 41 degrees latitude is now going to be, um, you know, 20 degrees uh, higher up. And then, uh, of course, an object that was uh, 20 degrees below the southern horizon when it culminates um, will be uh, at the horizon now, um, you know. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the easy thing to do is just get on the software and just reset um, your location parameters. So if you're at 41, then, then you know, reset it to 20 degrees or so then you'll actually see, you'll see some pretty big objects pop up pretty quick because um, there's lots down there in, in lupus and um, Corona Australis and stuff like that. They're, they're going to really uh, jump out at you. Um, and a lot of them are going to be visible in binoculars. Um, you know, some of the stuff that I would go for would be stuff that maybe is visible at 41 degrees north latitude. For example, um NGC 6231, the false comet there in the very bottom of the stinger of uh, Scorpius, um, is a fantastic target, although you're just barely getting it at 41 degrees north. Or like you you kind of sort of can see it. Um, but when that thing is another 20 degrees higher, um, there's some nebulosity in that there, especially if that little 70 millimeter 
um, refractor than uh, than a UHC filter, you're going to start to be able to pull out that nebulosity if you're able to get to uh, to a dark site. So a little bit of combination of new objects and then and then re-exploring the objects that uh, maybe you've seen before. Same thing with like uh, oh something like the uh, Lagoon Nebula is uh, here. You know, it's pretty far down, Shane. Sort mm -hmm. of cut in in amongst the trees here when I observe it. Uh, but if I went to 20 degrees south, then uh, that thing is going to be, whoa, like halfway to the zenith, just about, right? Yeah, so yeah. so that's going to really, really give you a different perspective. You know, objects like the, uh, you know, like the Cat's Paw Nebula and the Lobster Nebula and Cluster, uh, Pismus uh, 24 is in there too. I mean, those ones are just barely perceptible here in the 40s and you know, 40 to 50 degree latitude range. Um, but, you know, you get to that dark site and, and uh and and 20 degrees further south you're really going to get a get a nice view of those um some books that i would recommend taking a look at might be things like the caldwell objects mm -hmm. taking a look if there's any caldwell objects that uh that are now going to be visible um take a look at omira's uh hidden treasures i know you're a fan of that one as well shane mm -hmm. um and then i think uh, Stephen amira even has a southern uh objects so, southern um, gems i think southern maybe? gems yeah that's yep. it i have a copy of that many from um the james dunlop catalog so if you look up james dunlop you can actually go through but but the probably the best resource for that is uh is Amira's southern gems uh as well so those are going to be uh, uh the resources that uh, that i own and use i'm not sure what your recommendation might be shane or or if i've covered it yeah, your response was awesome. Uh, I think uh, you hit on all of the key points. The only thing I would add, um, and this is not a required piece of uh, you know uh, uh, prep, uh, preparation, but you 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 may want to consider it, and and that's just getting a planisphere for that uh, latitude. Um, so the planisphere are those little. Uh, you know, it's got like the, the disc in the middle that sort of rotates that you um, align it for the date and time. And then it shows you all the constellations that are in the sky and you can hold this thing up over your head. And it, it's very easy to see where the constellations are and orient yourself. Um, traveling from 41 degrees down to 20 degrees will change the look of the night sky quite mm -hmm. a bit. Mm -hmm. So it might be disorienting the first time you're out yeah. under sky and having one of these resources would probably be handy. If I was traveling, I think I would take one. Um, now where to find these, just do an internet search for like a planisphere in that 20 degree North uh, mm -hmm. latitude and, and you'll find something. Um, and that could be uh, a handy resource. And then the other thing, um, using any of the resources that Chris mentioned, I think what I would do is just how I prepare for any of my observing sessions now. And that's, I would I would take my uh, pocket sky atlas. Oh yeah. Um, yep. And then I'd mark it up a little bit with some yeah. post-it notes to say post like, notes, here's, yeah. you know, the object that I want to see in this constellation and, and prepare myself so that when I'm under those, you know, uh, those skies and, and I have a limited amount of time, I'm just, you know, Whipping. as efficient as possible. Yeah. When I'm cruising through the objects. Yeah. Now he was debating whether or not to take the binoculars or the telescope, but you know, when I, the reason why I end up buying my 60 millimeter FS uh, tack was for these sort of occasions and the easy GTI as well. Um, figure out a way to get that in. It's not a big piece of gear because um, between that telescope, the mount, you take an eyepiece or two and then you're, um, you know, uh, maybe a Barlow and you're laughing because like maybe you're, maybe just think about focusing on the deep sky 
And uh, like for me anyway, with these smaller telescopes, like even my comet catcher, just that, that's my most recent experiences that are sticking out in my head. Uh, I'm using a 20, a 12 and a half and, uh, and a barla. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's it. I can, I can get up to, you know, around a hundred and, and 125 power, which I find about max for, for deep sky um, in a lot of conditions anyway. And, you know, just take a couple of eyepieces and a Barlow, it's, you know, it shouldn't be too bad and uh, should be able to fit it in. And then when you get to your location, um, one thing that can be really easy to do that, that many people don't consider is it can be really easy to find someone to lend you a tripod. I've certainly like lent out my tripod on several locations to traveling astronomers um, people that sometimes don't even know that well, but many of us, Shane, I mean, you can speak for yourself, but we always seem to have tons of, um, old tripods that have maybe seen some better days, but are still serviceable. We have sitting around and I have lent those out to people that are passing through and, uh, they've always returned them. I've, I've never had an issue. And, uh, and, and oftentimes when you're going to a place, you might be able to find someone that will loan you one. Um, or you can get into a, uh, a camera store and, uh, I mean, it always seems like they have that bin by the door that has like $50 tripods and a little, uh, AT 70 on the AZ GTI, um, would only need a, a very small, uh, camera tripod to, to mount effectively on it. I think it's well worth it to, to go for it and, and try to take the scope with you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot of ways to do it, but I, if, if you can fit the, the telescope, um, you know, that's definitely the way to go in my opinion. All right. Uh, Clint wrote and, uh, we had, I'm, I'm not going to read all of the exchanges that I had with Clint. Uh, we, we went down the rabbit hole pretty bad. We started talking about doing a deep dive in Scorpius and he oh, ended up yeah. buying a Takahashi DC 100 millimeter telescope. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Look, so at, look at you. Be careful when you write me people because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes this happens. Yeah. You might maybe, spend yeah, some money. Let's, you know, it's really easy to spend other people's money. No, he was, he was debating on getting a TAC 100 DC or 100 DZ or DZ. And I said, just get the DC. Like it's like for me, I bought it. It was an easy decision because I'd read tons of reviews. I already had used several Takahashi's. Already owned a Takahashi um, that supposedly isn't even as good as the DC level. And I was like, if the FS is this good, how good is the DC? And it was better. And I just think it's phenomenal telescope. And sure, the DZ. I've read reports that oh, it's a scooch better still, but it's just like well. Honestly, if mm-hmm. the DC had been as good as the FS anyway, even if it was just in that range, I would have been super thrilled. The fact that the DC is is that next step. Uh, anyway, I just think it's a phenomenal scope for the price. Um, so yeah. And then Roger linked me into a Clyde Knight's thread about uh, Leslie Peltier and the museum exhibit in Delphos, uh, Ohio. Um, put the link there. Maybe that could be linked out. It's it's a pretty cool thread on Cloudy Nights. It seems like the Cloudy Nights episode, for some reason, we had a lot of people like um, sending us Cloudy Nights links, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to go down there and see the Pelche. Um, they rebuilt his observatory in this little museum. It's called, I think it was like a merry-go-round observatory. He could sit in this uh, little building. It was very short. I think he had a six-inch F8 refractor in there that he had borrowed from the AAVSO or something. And then he had like a tractor steering wheel and an old car seat and he could kind of turn the wheel and the, the observatory would spin around and he could 
raise and lower the telescope to observe all areas of the sky. I had it sitting out in, uh, in a cow pasture or something like that. Anyway, super, super cool. Thanks so much, Roger, for, for sending that, uh, that along. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, always love the kind of that museum stuff, you know, or, or old observatories, old telescopes. It's, uh, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. So while we were, we were, we were chatting with uh, Blake earlier and then we took a break and, uh, I had, a an email here from Julian and Julian had sent us uh, a note and, and a brief, um, bit about a, a short piece that was written on him and in, in sky news, uh, magazine, Shane, but he was asking about bino viewers. Um, he had sent this directly to me. So you, you haven't seen this. Mm. However, I'm not a bino viewer user, uh, Julian. And so Shane, I didn't know maybe if you could read this, it's a pretty uh, short and succinct email. And he's asking a few questions about bino viewers. Um, do you want me to read it? Maybe you can try responding. Yeah, to sure. Okay. So Julian writes, and, and by the way, Julian, I really appreciate you sending your, your article. He, he refers to himself as a novice observer, um, which I think is fine. I always feel like when it comes to amateur astronomy that we're all kind of in the same boat, though. I always feel like I'm still learning. There's lots of people that are more experienced than me and Shane and lots of people that that maybe have different experiences. And then somebody can come along and you know, they're, they're going to go down a whole different path and, and they're already a, a bigger expert than we're ever going to be in a certain facet of astronomy, but I uh, do really appreciate your email. And I really enjoyed seeing the painting um, that you had done. And he has an awesome constellation t-shirt. I'll stop there. Okay. Um, Julian writes, um, when you get time, consider responding to these questions about uh, the Orion linear binary viewers, which have a clear aperture of 17.4 millimeters. Um I use these binary viewers in two telescopes. He has a Zenith star 81 millimeter with a focal length of uh, 559. And he has, I believe it's an Orion XT10, which is a, a 10 inch or 250 millimeter aperture telescope, 1200 millimeter focal length. Um, I realize these eyepieces I use should not have a field stop larger than 17.4 millimeter. However, I use a Teleview 18.2. I think that's the Delos. Um, eyepieces, uh, which have a field stop of 19.1. These work super well without any visible vignetting that I can detect. I also use uh, Teleview 20 millimeter plossils, which have a field stop of 17.1. And these work super well. Questions. Okay. You ready for the question, Shane? Ready. This is, we're really putting you on the spot here, Julian and I. So I appreciate this. Yep. Question one, in your view, would five millimeter naglers work in these Orion linear binary viewers? Their field stop is seven millimeter. Hmm. So there, there's a caveat here that I need to put out right away. And that's that the linear vinyl viewers are different than uh, what I would say is your standard vinyl viewer. Um, the linear vinyl viewers are a different design and they do not require any kind of like a glass path corrector or Barlow to achieve focus. They will hmm. work in just about any telescope. Hmm. And I believe when we had Mark Radici on, I think he's got a pair of these linear vinyl viewers, um, not the Orion's, uh, I can't remember what brand his are, but not that it really matters. You know, uh, they're, they're all the same similar, in principle. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's the advantage of a linear vinyl viewer. Now, if I remember correctly, there, some people complain about, I don't know if it's internal reflections or, or what, but anyway, regardless of that, um, higher power in a binocular viewer, um, sometimes will also 
if there's a slight miscollimation in the vinyl viewer, higher powers will highlight that miscollimation even more. So where this comes into play is uh, the ability for your eyes or your brain to merge the two images. Um, at lower powers, uh, even if they're miscollimated, your, your brain will still merge the image. But at higher powers, it becomes more and more difficult for that to oh. happen. So you may run into an issue where you can't merge the two images. Not sure. Um, but as long as you can get past that, um, yeah, the, the five millimeters should work fine. Um, in my binocular viewer, my um, now I, mine's not linear, but the shortest focal length pair of eyepieces that I have right now is six millimeter. Um, and those are the monocentrics. So they're, you know, a tiny pinhole to look through, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they work fine. The, the other thing that is, um, more critical to at these higher powers is just getting the, um, the IPD. So like the, the distance between your, um, your eyes, essentially, mm -hmm. you, you just have to get that. It has to almost be perfect or else you're going to have some issues too, but, but yeah, it should work. So uh, good luck if uh, you decide to go down that path. Uh, then five millimeter Naglers give you an outstanding field of view. Okay. So you kind of answered question three as well, I think. Uh, okay, question two. Uh, would the image in the viewers be too dark or would the magnification be too high even on a clear night under Bortle 3? Well, so yeah, the I guess maybe um, a general kind of uh, crit. Uh, critical view of binocular viewers is that they take light away um, that, you know, as the light bounces off the prisms and mirrors within the binocular viewer, you lose a little bit of light, each one of those bounces and the views are typically, you know, dimmer than what it would be mono viewing. Um, but what I can say is, uh, you know, just a few episodes ago when you and I came back, Chris from Grasslands National Park, very dark there, you know, Bortle one is probably what that would be classified as. Mm -hmm. Um, with my bino viewer in a four inch refractor, uh, I think it was NGC 4725, if I remember correctly, it's a galaxy up in coma Berenices. And, um, I was able to see uh, a 13 magnitude and a 13.5 magnitude star within like that are in the foreground of this galaxy, mm -hmm. um, which is really pushing a four inch to its limits, uh, even mono viewing. So, um, you know, you can, um, you can overcome the, the loss of light by using lower powers in a bino viewer. So that's what most people do. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if you would normally look at an object at, you know, 200 times, maybe you, you back that off to 150 times and, uh, or, or, you know, you'd kind of find your sweet spot. Uh, again, it's a very subjective thing, but, uh, the, the, the real, I guess, kind of concise answer here is, uh, no, it's not too dark, uh, to use a bino viewer. Um, uh, but you know, you just may have to dial back the magnification a little bit. Yeah. And he sort of asked specifically about uh, moon and planets and, and mm -hmm. deep sky objects like, uh, open and globular star clusters as well as, uh, as the planetary nebulas. But I, I would think kind of that, that sage advice that you just gave, uh, goes that, you know, you might just have to play around with them a bit. As long as they work, they should work uh, fine on, on a variety of objects. Cause he's got a wide range of instruments there from an 81 millimeter to a, to a 10 inch. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then the last question would the five millimeter nagglers work well on the moon and planets. I've never used a five millimeter nagler. Um, so I can't really comment on its performance, but 
as long as you can merge the images in the binocular viewer, uh, any five millimeter pair should be wonderful to look at the moon and planets, um, particularly the moon. Like I, I think you, the the times that I've binocular viewed the moon, it really does feel like you're in a spaceship passing by the moon because mm-hmm. you know both eyes are open. And you're just seeing an incredible amount of detail. It it really changes the experience of uh, observing the moon, and mm-hmm. you know, using that high power, you're going to see all kinds of detail. So I think that would be fantastic. Okay, last question: Would a pair of 24 millimeter panoptics, which have a field stop of 27 millimeters, uh, mm-hmm. present pop problems with these binoculars? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they would. Um, I think it's very comparable to my uh, silly pencil Borg here that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the pencil Borg has 25 millimeters of aperture. Uh, The panoptics, what did he say? 27 millimeters. Yeah. Yeah, um, And I noticed that, uh, in fact, I thought that it's actually larger than 27 millimeters. I thought that it was uh, in the closer to 30. Um, I think the spec is 29, but there's like the way they do the optical path folding or something fancy like that. It, anyway, 27 is the effect. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Um, anyway, I do notice it quite a bit on my uh, pencil Borg, um, like that three millimeter difference, uh, different, it, it softens, uh, the view on the edges. Like there's definitely some vignetting that happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, so within that linear bino viewer with, uh, you know, um, what is it? 19 millimeters of available 19.1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As the field stop. Yeah. I don't think you'd be happy with the pen optics. No, no, maybe something like, uh, uh, like the 18 millimeter, um, flat field eye pieces that are around these days might, might work well. What do you think? Something like yeah, that. Yeah. Probably yeah. Yeah. Max. Usually if you exceed the field stop by a millimeter or two, it's not bad. Um, no. yeah, he has going... the 18.2. So he's, I think he's, he's got it dialed in there. I think. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's the, the one. Spot. And I hear, I've never looked through those Delos before, but, um, he didn't say there were Delos. I'm, I'm making an assumption. I don't think anybody else makes an 18.2 eyepiece. Uh, and, uh, no, I think those are the delights. The or the, the delights long, is that yeah, yeah yeah the longest delos is uh, seventeen point three, okay, and then the delight right. has the eighteen two. All right, yeah, I I've, I'm not that familiar with those lines clearly, um, but I, I've heard I've read uh, amazing things about the eighteen point two. So yeah. I think I think he's nailed it with that, and uh, I honestly think going to another eyepiece uh, just isn't going to give a satisfying view regardless because uh, he's kind of he's kind of got one there that is reportedly. Um, one of the best uh, optical designs to the edge uh, in that, in that this, you know, kind of range of, of focal lengths that we'd be looking at recommending anyway. So yeah, you've kind of already achieved uh, uh, that goal there. I think Julian. Yeah. Yeah. The 18.2 is I think widely considered to be the, the, the best performer in the entire delight range. And uh, you know, that's saying a lot because that's a really nice set of eyepieces. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to look through them some days um, someday, but uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Julian. Thanks for the uh, the email there. Um, and uh, yeah, we had some communication from from Phil in the UK as well. And uh, yeah, he's uh, back to doing some observing. Was asking me some questions about uh, uh, coma correctors, but uh, yeah, we can uh, perhaps we can move along to closing this show out. Shane, do you have anything left to add? No, Chris. That's all I have. All right. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're always excited to get your observing emails or questions or comments or whatever you want to actualastronomy at gmail.com. And we're on Patreon. If anybody wishes to support us, we always appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, 
would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>